In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, on God, Amen. Tonight, through the grace of God, we will study Psalm 65. The title of the psalm is To the Chief Musician, a Psalm of David, a Song. So according to the title, David is the author. And it is directed toward the chief musician. Some suppose the chief musician to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Others suppose to be a leader of choir or musicians in the time of David as he meant the singer or a This psalm and the three following songs carried double title, song and a psalm, a psalm of David, a song. Song is the older term of a hymn intended to be sung in public worship. As we read in Isaiah 30, 29 and in Amos 8, 33. So when we read the word song means it is a hymn chanted in public worship. This psalm centers around describing the great blessings of God. It begins in the style of a prayer, then a description of God, and concludes with praise to God. When the psalm was written, we don't know. But because of its thankfulness and the praise that's connected to flocks and grain, as we will see towards the end of the psalm, many think it was composed for harvest festival could be the feast of tabernacle in the fall season but some believe that david composed the psalm at the time of bringing the ark of god to zion in this psalm david reminds us of the importance of giving thanks and being grateful to god all the time because he is our Redeemer, our Creator, and our Provider. Redeemer, Creator, Provider. This psalm stands out more than the other psalms in its beautiful description of God's care for his children. And the church prays the first two verses of this psalm on the Feast of the Cross and on Hosanna Sunday. Because through the cross, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ opened the door to all who believe in him to praise him because they are saved. As I told you, this psalm focuses on our Redeemer, our Creator and Provider. So the outline of this psalm, it is just 13 verses. From verse 1 to 4, praise be to the Savior, to our Redeemer. Five to eight, praise be to the Creator, our Creator. From nine to 13, praise be to God for prosperity, the provider. So one to four, our Redeemer, five to eight, our Creator, and nine to 12, our provider. So let's start from verse one. Praise is awaiting you, O God in Zion, 
and to you the vow shall be performed. So the psalm begins with David declaring that praise rightfully belong to God in Zion. And Zion represented the church. So we come to the church to praise the Lord. Zion is the mountain upon which Jerusalem was built. And Zion also is used to identify the city itself. So many times the city of Jerusalem can be referred to as Zion. Also, Zion is the location of the temple. And the people of Israel thought that Zion is the place where God dwells. Because the temple where they worship God in Zion. So here in verse 1, he described a wonderful picture. Praise was waiting to be given unto God in Jerusalem. Praise is awaiting you O God in Zion. So as if praise is waiting in the church to be offered to God. As if the church is waiting for the believers to come in order to praise the Lord. So the sense is that when God come to meet his people, like when we worship him in the church, he would be received in atmosphere of praise. Like when we receive a bishop entering the church, we receive him with the hymn Ikizmarod. So how we receive God when we meet him in the church or when he meets us in the church, we receive him by praising. And by the way, Ikizmarod means blessed is God. So because the bishop is the icon of Christ in the church, so actually as we receive God with praise, we receive his icon with praising God also. And the word praise originally means standing in awe and silence, which what people feel when contemplating in God's gift that surpass all thoughts. As if you see a beautiful scene and then you stand in silence. No words can describe the beauty of this scene. Again, when we reflect on the gifts of God, we stand in silence and in awe because of the graciousness of his gifts toward us. St. Augustine thinks the psalm concerns the captives of Babylon. And the word Babylon means confusion. St. Augustine says, there are two choices before us. Either to dwell in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem means what? Peace. Salim, Shalim, peace. Or to dwell in Babylon. Babylon means confusion. St. Augustine says, These two cities then at particular time were built. You can read about building Babylon in, in Genesis. So that there might be shown a figure of two cities begun of old, and to remain even unto the end of this world. So these two cities represent two groups of people. People who live in peace and people who live in confusion. St. Augustine continues and says, At that time the Lord shall show 
when some he shall sit on right hand and others on the left, as we read in Matthew 25. Jerusalem on the right hand shall be, Babylon on the left hand. Two loves make up these two cities. Love of God makes Jerusalem. Love of the world makes Babylon. Therefore, let each one question himself as to what he loves, and he shall find of which he is a citizen. Are you citizen of Jerusalem or citizen of Babylon? And if he shall found himself to be a citizen of Babylon, let him root out malice and implant charity. But if he shall have found himself a citizen of Jerusalem, then let him endure captivity, hope for liberty. Because Satan will persecute the uh, children of God. Then he said, and to you, the second part of verse 1, and you the vow shall be performed. The reference here is to vow or the promises which the people had made. The worshippers at the temple celebrates the mercies of God and how he answers our prayer. So they would gather in Jerusalem to thank God for answering their prayers and to offer sacrifices and praise because God fulfilled the vows they made. So the sacrifices and thanks offering which the people vowed to God, like in the time of their danger, when they were supplicating deliverance and other blessings shall be faithfully paid. So here is an instruction to us. If you make a vow to God, you should perform it. And to you the vow shall be performed. It's written in the scripture. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not to fulfill it. Then verse 2. O you hear prayer. To you all flesh will come. The words in verse 2 are more than a reference to a particular answer to prayer. It's very broad. Oh, you who hear prayer, prayer, any prayer and for everyone. So they proclaim that it is his absolute, undeniable attribute. It is his nature to hear and answer prayer. Therefore, all flesh are encouraged because of this character, because God hears the all prayer. And because of his nature of hearing all prayer, that's all flesh shall come to you. Or you hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Everyone in the world will come to you. This psalm expresses the universal need to come to God. All people on earth, not only the Jewish people, must come to God. And this can be considered prediction of the conversion of the Gentiles after the incarnation of the Son of God. Verse 3, Iniquities prevail against me, 
As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. That's why this part, we call it our Redeemer. Our Redeemer. So David understood his personal struggle against sin, which all, all of us struggle with sin. And how he sometimes failed in that struggle. But also, he understand that God's answer for transgression is an atoning sacrifice that God provides. Yes, we transgress the commandment of God. Iniquity prevail against me. But how God answer prayer when we ask for forgiveness? As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. David believed in the system of animal sacrifices established by the law of Moses. But in this verse, he looked beyond that system to a perfect sacrifice that God himself would provide. He did not say that animal sacrifice will atone people's transgression. But he said, it is God who is covering over all the people's sin. As for our transgression, you, not the blood of animals, you will provide atonement for them. So, David looked to the Messiah and his perfect atoning work of the cross, fulfilling the promise, you will provide atonement for them. So although the psalmist acknowledges his grievous sin and rebellious transgressions in this verse, he speaks from the standpoint of one who no longer bears the burden of guilt. And we need to keep the balance between the two. If you focus only on your sins, you will fall in despair. If you focus only on the mercies of God, you will fall in negligence. But you need to remember both. Yes, my iniquities overcome me, defeated me, but it is God who atoned for our transgressions. God atoned for his sin, God forgiven him, and that is the final word. So David and all of us feels the lightness of one who has carried a heavy burden, but has felt it is left removed, no, never more to return, because God atoned for our sins. Verse 4, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. David reminds us that we gather for worship in the church. So we ought to give thanks and gratitude to God because he answered our prayer, he forgave our sins, and because daily he provides for our needs. This fellowship and close relationship with God allow us to be with him and 
because we are with him, this is a great reason to praise him. So it is quite astounding that God chooses to treat his people as his children. As he told us, behold what manner, as St. John tells us, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And as children, we dwell in his courts. That's why he said, blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. Who will dwell in father's house? His children. In the same way, because we are his children, we dwell in his court. Why? To experience all the goodness of his house. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house of your holy temple. All the goodness here means all the promises that God has given to his children we can benefit from. So the goodness of your house gives the image of God as a host, as a father for his people. St. Augustine comments on the man you choose and say, blessed is the man you choose. So St. Augustine, he said, who is this man? Who is he that's chosen by God the Father and taken to him? Was anyone chosen by our Savior Jesus Christ? Or was himself after the flesh because he is man chosen and taken to him? So St. Augustine says, this man refers to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And since he is the head and who are his body. So any person in the body of Christ, he is chosen also. So he explains further and says that they, the chosen, are those who abide in the bond of Christ and are his members. He is the head and the believers are the body. Then St. Augustine asks, what are the good things of the house of God? we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house. He says, it is not how abundantly it is furnished. It is not how much the house of God itself delights us with pictures, marble, ceilings, pillars, recesses, chambers. All such things are indeed objects of desire, but still they are of confusion of Babylon. Cut off all such longings, O children, O citizens of Jerusalem. If you intend to return home, don't let the captivity confuse you. Don't look back. Don't linger on the way. So the goodness here is spiritual, the forgiveness of our sins, not materialistic. And in remembering the great blessings of God, our attention will be directed away from ourselves and place the subject of our worship to God. It reminds us that we come to worship, placing our dependency on God instead of ourselves. It gives the focus and meaning to why you worship and to whom we are worshiping. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with your goodness, with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. By awesome deeds, 
in righteousness, you will answer us. He said, God answers the prayer. In verse 5, he is explaining how God answers us. He's answering us by awesome deeds in righteousness. You will answer us, O God of our salvation. You who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas. So the second section of the psalm, as I told you, first section is our create, uh, sorry, our redeemer. Second se- section, our creator. So the second section of the psalm describes the power and might of the Lord. God answers prayer and provided atonement. So David expected such awesome deeds in the future will happen also. He believes that the God who answered prayer, the God of their salvation, will answer their prayer with awesome deeds. What he meant by awesome deeds, he meant things astonishing, marvelous, miraculous. These deeds will be in righteous, will be righteous, in keeping with the nature of God who is righteous God. By awesome deed in righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation. God answered the prayer in a manner fitted to inspire awe in the hearts of the people. Answer to prayer is a great reason to praise God, and at times of answering is awesome. And sometimes the word awe is translated terrifying, and the original word suggests terrifying. So it may be said also that the deeds of God are indeed terrifying to the sinners, to the wicked, and to the disobedient, but they are awesome to the righteous. So they are awesome to the righteous, but terrifying to the wicked. They are called awesome deeds or terrifying because they inject horror and terror into the heart of the enemies and fill them with fear and reverence of God. These awesome deeds are done in righteousness, in faithfulness to his promises that he made to his people. As righteousness sometimes signifies promises. Like in Psalm 51, verse 14, word righteousness means promises. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness, of your promises that you made to me. God of our salvation, not only temporal, but spiritual and eternal. He said, O God of our salvation, to say you are eternal, you are not temporal like any earthly king, but you are spiritual and eternal. Then he said about God, you who are the confidence of all. It is an ongoing confidence in the continuation of God's goodness. O you who are the confidence of all, all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas. God is never beyond our reach. He is always at our side, always available to us through prayer. And David again lifted his vision from beyond Israel, 
to the ends of the earth and to far off seas. He understood that God was and is the God of the whole earth, not of Israel only. And according to St. Augustine, the sea here refers to the world where everyone devour the other. The far off seas means the world. But the children of God have the Savior as their hope, their confidence to protect them. Yes, they are not isolated from the wicked. For in the same net, the good and bad are together, as we read in the parable of the net that was cast into the sea. But on the shore of the eternal life, they will be sorted out. The wicked will be separated from the good. So God's power as displayed through his creation is a great reason to praise him. Verse 6, he starts to speak about his power in his creation. That's why praise becoming you in Zion. He said, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. The mountains are symbol of God's strength, firmness, stability, and immovability. They stand up in a still and silent majesty. They seem as if they could never be moved. He created them must be girded with power. He who established the mountains by his strength being closed with power. So, as if David is saying, because you are closed with power, that's why you establish the mountains by your strength. As we read in Psalm 93 verse 1, the Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed, he has girded himself with his strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Other commentator said the mountain is the kingdoms and empires. Because in Jeremiah 51 verse 25, he described kingdom as mountain. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth says the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burned mountain. But these mountains God will destroy. These are not steadfast. They are not firm and stable, because in the course of the times they are removed and give way to others. So in verse 6 here, he is not speaking about the kingdom. But could be he is speaking about the church of God. As we read in Isaiah 2 verse 2, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Also the mountains signify the believers for all that trust in the Lord are like mountains as we read in Psalm 125 this psalm we prayed in the 11th hour of the Agbeya those who trust in the Lord are like mountains 
they are fastened and rooted in the everlasting love of God by which their mountain is made to stand strong. Again, God continued demonstration of his power is a great reason to praise him. God's power is not only seen in the original work of creation, but also in his continued work within the creation. In verse 7, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the people. So God's power not only in creation, but his power during our life. So here in verse 7, he says, God controls the noise of the seas and the noise of their waves. God's might is shown in his ability to quiet not only the oceans, but also the noise of the people of the world and the tumult of the peoples. Still the noise of the seas. As we read in the miracles, the storm diminishes at his command and the sea is still. In Mark chapter 4, verse 39, we can see manifestation of his power when he said to the troubled waves, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Knowing this great power of God should build our faith when we see the tumult of the people, the tumult of the wicked men against the church, or who rage against the people of God. They are like a troubled sea that cannot rest. But God can say to these proud waters, to these wicked people who threaten to go over the souls of the righteous, peace, be still, and they will stop. He can stop their opposition. He can restrain their wrath and make them peaceable and quiet. Wherefore, the believers have no reason to be afraid of them. Why David recorded these events in nature? In verse 8, he explained, They also who dwell in the farthest part are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. So, verse 8 tells us that we are to be in awe of the signs of God. And God's authority extended far beyond Israel to the farthest part of the earth. These things exist so that we would seek after God. When the people saw the signs of God, they will fear him and seek after him. All of it speaks to the power of God. They also that dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid of the signs of God. They see these signs, indications of God's mighty power, and are filled with awe. But some commentators about the farthest part, they said this refers to the sun, moon, and stars who are far from the earth 
which declare the glory of God as we read the, the heaven declare the glory of God to the uttermost part of the earth and make men filled with awe and reverence of him. Others said these signs are the thunder and lightning which sometimes very dreadful and terrible and make the people fear God. So these signs might be the terrible phenomena in nature like earthquake, pandemic, tornado, or storm. When they are seen, even the most evil, cruel people tremble before God and fear Him. But the people of God are not afraid. They rejoice. These signs bring terror to the enemies of God, but bring joy to the people of God. When God exercises His authority over the earth, this brings rejoicing, even not to His people, but to the day, to the morning and to the night. As He said, you make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. Some interpret morning and evening referring to the morning and evening sacrifices in the temple. But others said, this, the sun that goes forth in the morning and the moon and stars that appear in the evening, both give pleasure and delight to the inhabitants of the earth. And some say the illusion outgoing of morning and evening is to the east and the west, which includes the whole world and its inhabitants praising the Creator. St. Augustine said, by the morning he signifies the prosperity of the world. By evening he signifies the trouble of the world. The believer though, having got the light of the Lord, does not care much for the morning of the world, because he has the light of God, and is not disturbed by the troubles of its evening, again for the sake of the Lord. When man does not find pleasure in the things of the world, he would not be disturbed by its troubles. People of God, they are not pleased or find pleasure in the earthly pleasures. And they are also not disturbed by the troubles of the world. They find their pleasure only in the promises of the Savior. Then the last part, we said from verse 1 to 4, God our Redeemer. From 5 to 8, God the Creator. From 9 to 13, God the Provider. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. So in conclusion, David praised God for his bountiful providence with respect to the harvest. God's providence in supplying the billions of people in the world means of sustenance is a great reason to praise him. After 
the sin of Adam, God punished Adam by cursing the ground that the man work in it. But God in his great mercy, though he cursed the ground, has consistently brought forth rain to water the furrows, softening the ridges and preparing the land for the grain, as we read in verse 10. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. The earth. David continues to declare the general providence of God to all men and people. You visit the earth. Earth means not Israel, but all the nations, and water it, you greatly enrich it. The psalmist present a portrait of how God, in his care for the whole humanity, visits the earth from one end to the other end. So God seems to come down that he may attend to the needs of the earth, survey the condition of the things, arrange for the welfare of the world which he has made, and supply the needs of those whom he has created to dwell upon the earth. St. Augustine says, you have visited the earth and have saturated it. You have sent your clouds. They have rained down the preaching of the truth. Inebriated is the earth. You have multiplied to enrich it. You have visited the earth also, this may be applied to the church and people of God in gospel times who are like good ground. Do you remember the parable of the sower? And the believers are the good ground on which the seed falls and is received and brings forth fruit and are comparable to the earth that drink in rain and comes upon it, as we read in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives the blessing from God. So the earth here can refer to the believers. Then he said, the river of God is full of water. River of God can mean the river of God's everlasting love, full of water, full of love, full of blessing of grace and flowing upon his people and make them fruitful. St. Augustine says, what is the river of God? The people of God. The first people was filled with water. He speak about Israel. Wherewith the rest of the earth might be watered. Then through Israel, the rest of the earth watered. Because the apostles were Jewish people, Mark was Jewish, and they actually preached the whole earth. Hear him promising water. If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, rivers of living water from his belly shall flow. If rivers, one river also. So although there are rivers like the apostles, 
but he called them the river, one river. Why? In respect of unity, many are one, the body of Christ. Yes, we have many churches, but one church. Many faithful, but one bride of Christ. So many rivers, but it is one river. Many Israelites believed and were fulfilled with the Holy Spirit. From hence, they were scattered abroad through the nations, like Mark, Paul, Peter. They began to preach the truth. And from the river of God that was filled with water, was the whole earth watered. And in scripture, water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in his abundant work, refreshing and purifying. So verse 9 has been by many commentators understood to point to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. Then he said, you water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You settle its furrows. The rain falling on the furrows beats them down so that the ground becomes leveled. So in a spiritual way, mean humble souls whom the Lord fills with his good things and make them fruitful in every good work. You know, the Pharaoh is the humble. In seed time, God sent that measure of rain that's necessary in order to prepare the earth for farming. And when the edges are thrown into the channels, he makes them soft with shower to make the soil light and open, ready for the seed. That's why he said, you water its ridges abundantly. So the ridges will go down. You settle its furrows, so the furrows will be level. You make it soft with showers, showers of rain. By this, he makes the land ready for the seeds to be fruitful. You bless its growth. God blessed by causing it to grow richly, thus producing an abundant harvest. All this may give us a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing down high thoughts and pride like the edges, softening the heart of the soul, that is the earth, and fill the hearts with good things, that's the pharaohs, causing every holy thing to increase and spread. Verse 11, all of us will know it. You crown the year with your goodness, and your path drip with abundance. In verse 11, David continues by describing the harvest that people enjoy because God has made the earth profitable. The year is crowned with plentiful harvest. So he said, you crown the year with your goodness. God, by his goodness, enriches and adorns all the seasons of the year 
with their proper fruits and blessing. And the church sing this verse in the liturgy of the Coptic New Year, the Feast of Nairuz, declaring God's favor and goodness, he who fills the church with his goodness. Then he said, your path drip with abundance. Path here means steps of God, traits of God. When he visits the land with rain, create fertility. That's why he said drip with abundance. So the rain is considered the steps of God. When it drops on the earth, creates fertility. According to the scholar origin, the year crowned by God's goodness concerned the period which God, during which the Lord lived in the flesh on earth. So he said, this year is the year of the incarnation. In Luke chapter 4, there is a quote from Isaiah, I preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And what is the acceptable year of the Lord? Is the year of his incarnation. It's not 365, but the time of incarnation. So scholar origin said, you crown the year with your goodness. That's about the incarnation. Drip, drip or drop, let fall gently as the rain or the dew falls on the earth. So the idea here is, wherever God goes, wherever he goes, walking through the earth, fertility, beauty, abundance, seems to fall gently along his path. Wherever God goes or works, he leaves the marks and signs of his mercy behind him. He bestows rich and significant blessing and thus makes his path to shine after him. They drop, that's the blessing of God, they drop on the pastures of the wilderness. And the little hills rejoice on every side. St. Augustine says, The righteous are called the plains because of their simple nature. Also they are called hills or mountains because of their exaltation, as God lift up the humble in him. But the wilderness, he says here, they drop on the pasture of the wilderness. St. Augustine said, the wilderness, on the other hand, are the Gentiles, the non-believers, to whom no prophets was sent, were like a desert through which no one passed. The word of God was not sent to the Gentiles at the beginning, but the prophets were sent only to Israel. But there are two harvests. The first harvest are the Jews, to whom prophets were sent to proclaim the coming of the Savior. And there will be another harvest of the Gentiles in which the apostles will labor. And at the end of time, God will send his angels for the ultimate harvest. So the meaning of this verse, your steps drop on pastures of the wilderness. Wilderness are the Gentiles like us the non-Israelites. Then we become little hills. 
We start as wilderness, but we become little hills and rejoice on every side. So it is not only the farmer's field that benefit from God's rain, but the wilderness. The prosperity brought by God's rain extend even to the wilderness and to the hills, bringing great joy. Little hills rejoice. Literally, the hills clothed themselves with joy and happiness. And as the psalmist saw hills covered with livestock and valleys full of grain, for him they constitute such strong evidence of God's good goodness, his providence, that he can actually hear the fields sing for joy. That's why he said in verse 13, the pastures are closed with flocks. He looked at the pasture, livestock everywhere. The valleys are covered with grain. The blessing grains fills all the valleys. So they shout for joy, they also sing. Creation itself shouted for joy and sang to God. David tries to remind us of how much God gives to the people of the earth. The rain fills the pastures with grass for cattle, and the valleys, which he mentions as the most fruitful places, was filled with corn for the use of man. They shout for joy, they also sing, meaning they are abundantly satisfied with God's goodness, and in their manner sing forth the praises and declare the goodness of their Creator to the whole world. What a beautiful image here. It expresses well the beauty of nature and describes the goodness of God. Everything in this psalm seems to be happy and full of song, and all this is to be traced to the goodness of God. This concludes Psalm 65. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.